Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby. Hello, and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Rivka Rivera, and today Frank had a family emergency, so won't be joining me for the topical, but I have a special guest with me. You may remember her from our Barbie podcast, very, very heated episode, filmmaker Jessie Conweiler. Hey, Jessie. Was I invited back or was I forced? We'll never know. (laughs) I thought this was great because we were planning on talking about the 81st Golden Globes, which happened on January 7th, and the Emmys are tonight. And actually, Jesse and I, we were having a conversation earlier about transformations in our relationships to the industry and just a lot of a lot of feelings about career and art and gatekeepers, gatekeepers, capitalism. And I was thinking it would be really great to share this convo on this topical with our audience because it's so much of what we talk about. So did you watch the Golden Globes, Jesse? So Rivka, great question. First of all, you look beautiful. (laughs) Um, I love the Golden Globes the Globes, the Oscars, like as much as I love to shit on them and I'm excited to do that today, they are also my Super Bowl and attendance is mandatory. I sit, I watch the entire thing and I love them. So it's a very love-hate relationship with award shows and Hollywood in general. In general. I agree. I mean, we wouldn't be talking about them if there wasn't a love for them and a fascination for them. It's like Barbie, you know? Yeah, totally. And I do think this comes up all the time. If you criticize something, does it mean you can't love it? Is critique inherently a form of dislike or hatred? Which I, if you listen to this show, you know, I don't think so at all. I think it's a form of wanting to understand something that you love so much at its core and maybe transform your relationship with it. Wait, did you watch? No, I've slowly stopped watching. I guess that's that's part of what happens when you do start to really look at something and you're like, it just doesn't fully do it for me anymore. I think also like, and this is what I wanted to talk to you about, what I'm interested in is identifying the things that it fulfilled as a child and like, what are the ways that we as artists can, if if we're not already, fulfill those on our own? And I think as I've developed my artistic circle and just been more engaged and more recovered as a creative and been more creative in my life, the need for those from award show is less. There was a need to like see it and be a part of it and see who wins. And, you know, if I want to wear a dress and look hot and get great pictures, it's so much more accessible. I'm like, cool, I'll put on a great dress and get one of my friends to take photos of me. Right. Or if it's that I need to be in community with other great creatives and say, hey, I love your film. But the idea that there's a best is already – I've done a lot of work to already dispel that illusion anyways. And I think we've all kind of collectively realized, like, it's so silly. I don't think I know anyone who actually believes the best actor is the best actor or even believes that, like, it was fairly voted on and there wasn't an entire campaign with lots of money behind that person being pushed. But I, Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think it's – for me, it's like the shittier things get, the more that I really rely on, like – my rituals and like having fantasy and having, you know, enjoying the spectacle of it all. I think for me, maybe I'm just compartmentalizing and it's it's not healthy. But for me, I like love, I just remember watching it with my mom. I'm like texting with my mom and my sister. Oh my God, whose dress sucks. Like that's the kind of stuff I love. And I totally hear you, um, you know, about the bullshit of it all. But I also think about, you know, divine randolph joy one and i just think for somebody like her it's like well this is gonna like hopefully hopefully change her life and she's gonna be able to get more roles and be able to tell more stories like that and so i don't think it's all i don't think it's black and white like everything i do still think maybe it's naive but i do still think there is some some good socialist principles hidden way deep in um in all the botox of the evening. Yeah, and I think that's the question. Can we identify those values and can we give them to ourselves? It's just life? a party. It's just a boring party. Exactly like you're saying, the principle of being like, can we celebrate amazing work that's not getting attention ordinarily and hope that that extends beyond one individual, which I don't think 
this system. I don't think award show does. I think if anything we saw with Barbie, there's an illusion that it's going to be all women making movies because Greta Gerwig tore that glass ceiling down and you're like, the numbers are saying absolutely not. Only to be then just like trolled by that terrible joke about Barbie was about movies or whatever. I mean, there's so much to what you just said. I feel like, first of all, I met somebody, I remember meeting somebody who had an Oscar, relax, it was a composer, it wasn't Brad Pitt. And I asked him like, (laughs) how long did it make you happy for? And he like really thought about it. And he was like, two days. And I I always love thinking about that story because it's like, you know, the fantasy and oh my God, if I could just get there, I could just be in that room. And it's like, even if you get there, it's two days of happiness, if that. And I think Also, just this idea that are winners only winners because there's losers is obviously Mm. a very inherently capitalist idea. But it was interesting after the monologue and everything, like the Barbie of it all, I was saying to my boyfriend the next day, I was like, was Barbie good? Because I was like wanting to stick up for Barbie and like just because of that terrible monologue and it just like not getting really not getting the awards and not getting the love and just being kind of seen as like Oppenheimer is the real cinema and Barbie is the girl movie. And I was like, wait. And I was like, no, it was an ad. It didn't, Barbie wasn't it for me. But at the same time, it's like when somebody insults your mom and you're like, I can say my mom's a bitch, but like, fuck you, do not come for my mom. That's how I felt. I felt protective of Barbie. I guess I'm just done. It's it's like, we were talking about this earlier. It's, like, it's becoming more and more of a fuckboy, these awards shows which is kind of freeing like maybe I can get what I want from it which is look at the outfits and partake in whatever but not actually give it the weight and be able to move away and be like cool if I want to have some sort of feeling about like creative wholeness it's never going to come from this and maybe I'm there one day maybe I'm not but like it's never going to be something that needs to fulfill us and what, what do we need as independent creators and can we create that for each other totally and I think there's a grief almost in being like you know, like when you are breaking up with the fuck boy and you're like, he's got all these issues and it's like, you have to break up with the shitty guy. You're still kind of sad. Like I kind of feel that way about like old Hollywood and the changing of the guard and how it's like the system, you know, having gone through this strike this summer and being like, oh my God, like the system is crumbling. Streaming broke the business. It was never a super moral business, but it was a working business model where a lot of people were able to make a living streaming came in and really broke the business and now it's kind of shattered and the good thing about the bottom falling out is that we all get to kind of be like oh we're our own saviors we're our own gatekeepers like nothing is stopping you from making content I can't believe I just said content shoot me but you know what I mean it it's it's <laughs> it's grieving the dream because that's no longer something that you need to chase. You can just spend your energy actually making your art. I just want to bring up another tweet that I thought was interesting about the words from El Norte Recuerda. Oppenheimer, Ernst Burkhardt, William Hale, Napoleon, enough with the morally complicated colonizer origin stories. Like, yes, that was generally that. Like, i uh, not even going to see Napoleon. Like, what? it's true. I'm like, why? Why was it Napoleon? Why is Napoleon... It- yeah. So it's 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 obviously um what is it? It's like it it feels like when times of progress. I went and saw Luna Luna this week. Do you know Luna Luna? Have you heard of that? So I'll just tell you really quick. Mm-mm. It was this art exhibit that was started in the 80s by this like total performance artist visionary in Germany and he was like I'm going to get all of the contemporary modern mm-hmm. artists and I'm going to make a circus an art circus and like it all it's all going to be for kids and everyone could come it's going to be experimental so like Basquiat, Keith Haring, Dali, like so many incredible artists all came together and made this thing and we were so excited to go I was like oh my god we're going to ride all the rides and do all this stuff and it was like girl I mean this hadn't been on it, it hadn't it had been hidden for like 40 years and we we're like why has this been like hidden like what happened and I finally of course I'm like always talking to people that work there they're like oh, well, when everybody died, all their Keith Haring Foundation, everybody's foundation, it became like all about the money. So they're like, we're not going to let our artist Mm. who is now dead and super popular and and a fucking cash cow, we're not going to let him be part of this collective thing. But it was such a like, oh, wow, it was inspiring. But it was also just like what they had done to the exhibit. It was just such 
an Instagrammable. It was all just like having the Instagram moment and you literally have to pay more to go like to the Salvador Dali like selfie. And like, it was just fucking crazy. The the commercialization (laughs) of it. Yeah, it just had me thinking a lot about like how we consume art now and like what, taking the power back, you know, like really just making it for us and our friends and like art should be cheap. Art is not a luxury art is a necessity. You know, the one thing we can do is take back this evil fucking technology. We can use it to to make our shit. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to yoga. Okay. And thank you so much, Jesse, for coming on for our topical conversation. Before we go to our full episode, I want to give a shout out to Julianne S. I hope I'm saying your name correctly. Julianne's a listener and a multimedia artist who documents and explores internal apocalypses, the fragility of personal relationships, and the necessity of creative expression for collective growth. You can find her work at foottoface.com. I'm shouting her out because for Christmas, she sent Frank and I t-shirts that are screen printed by hand. And on the back, it says... All the best to you, and may all the fascists fucking die. And on the front, there's this amazing guillotine. And Julianne, they're so cool. It's my favorite. I wear it to the gym. It's my favorite shirt. And I wear it out, but it's really fun lifting weights at the gym. Um, Thank you, Julianne. That was so generous. And you can find all of her work and all of her awesome t-shirts at foottoface.com. I also want to share that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we are trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we don't sell ads on this show. Instead, we rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast app. It takes two seconds, and it's super helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, and we really appreciate it. Okay, we'll be right back with filmmakers Ryan Dickey and Abigail Horton to discuss their film, Blow Up My Life. Today we are joined by Ryan Dickey and Abigail Horton. Ryan and Abigail have a long history of filmmaking collaboration. They've each directed short films that have played at festivals including South by Southwest and Fantastic Fest, won two Cannes Young Director Awards, and were selected as one of Filmmaker Magazine's 25 New Faces of Independent Film. Blow Up My Life is their debut feature film, which premiered at Austin Film Festival in 2022, won Best Film at Harlem International Film Festival, and is now available to stream on demand. And personally, they met on the set of the 2014 Cannes director Fortnite film Blue Ruin and have been blissfully married since 2017. Ryan and Abigail, thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure. Oh, yeah, we're so excited. This is the first time that we're getting the chance to speak with, you know, up and coming filmmakers about a film that they, in fact, made. So Rifkin and I are extremely excited I guess just for the listeners, uh, the two of you reached out to us to, mm-hmm. to to maybe talk about this film. I'm curious, how did you find us? Um, well, I subscribed to the Lever newsletter even before it changed its name to the Lever. It was something else before that. I can't remember. Oh, back in the Daily Poster days? Yeah, yeah, yeah back in the day. Um, and then this, they kind of started advertising this podcast, um, and I was like, Hell yeah. <laughs> what a perfect place. And to so I was our... like, honestly, it would, I, I really thought it was kind of a long shot, but I was like, I'm just going to try because like we would love to talk with you guys about, um, you know, just pursuits of anti-capitalism messaging and ideas in art and filmmaking, um, which is what your podcast does. Uh, so I just thought, hey, maybe they'll have us on. And, and we're so excited that, that you're having us. Yeah, it's a perfect pairing because when you reached out, you self-identified this film as being anti-capitalist. So I have many questions about what the creation of that looked like. But let's jump in. We are talking about your feature film, Blow Up My Life, written and directed by both of you, Ryan and Abby, starring Jason Selvig, Kara Young, Devram Stiefler, Ben Horner, and Rima Sampet. 
And the the synopsis for this, we're going to try not to give too much away because it is out on demand now. So we want folks to go and watch this film. When disgraced pharmaceutical employee Jason accidentally discovers a deadly corporate conspiracy at his former company, he and his cousin Charlie are forced to go on the run as they attempt to expose the crime before the rich, evil business people find them and kill them. A tale (laughs) as old as time. (laughs) So usually we give a little bit of historical context for when uh, the, the film that we're talking about was released. Um, As we mentioned, it came out in 2022. Uh, I think anyone listening to this probably remembers what 2022 was like. So rather than giving specific historical context, here's some statistics about the U.S. pharmaceutical industry and the opioid epidemic. The U.S. pharmaceutical industry is the largest in the world, making up about 40% of worldwide drug development, manufacturing, and revenue generation. The U.S. is the world's largest exporter of pharmaceuticals, accounting for nearly one-third of all pharma exports. The U.S. pharmaceutical industry generated $550 billion in revenue in 2021. Prescription drugs in the United States are over two and a half times more expensive than those in other countries. Almost 70% of Americans take at least one prescription drug. In 2021, there were roughly 107,000 drug overdose deaths in the U.S., and over 75% of those were opioid overdoses. And the number of drug overdose deaths in the U.S. increased more than 16% from 2020 to 2021. Yeah. Wow. Devastating. Yeah, Yeah, truly, truly devastating. So the first thing we ask our guest is uh, usually, why did you choose this film for us to watch? But love getting to ask filmmakers this question. What was the inspiration for the two of you to write and direct this film? You know, this topic of the you know, opioids and pharmaceutical industry and stuff has been important to me personally. Um, I've lost some loved ones in my life to opioids and to drug overdoses. And um, it's something that I've addressed in some of my er previous work, um, kind of looking at it more from the people suffering from addiction, but wanted to kind of approach it this time um, from someone who's on the inside kind of waking up to their complicity to the issue and really wanting to explore, you know, what does it take for someone to make a change in their life? You know, you can see, you know, maybe you get some some information that, you know, like, oh, maybe what I'm doing isn't like all for good. Maybe my intentions are good, but you know, at what point it's like, you know, the classic, like, you know, the path to hell is paid by good intentions. And Jason's kind of like riding that path a little bit, sort of, you know, uh, willfully ignorant perhaps to like, you know, how it's all happening. And so we really wanted to explore, you know, like, can people change? Will people change? What does it take for them to change? And, you know, hopefully, you know, get people thinking about like not only this system, but, you know, um, in the pharmaceutical company, but hopefully the, the metaphor kind of expands to, you know, capitalism sort of in general, it's not just about one product or one thing. It's kind of about how, you know, capitalism will sell you the disease and the cure over Mm. and over and over again. And that's how the system sort of, you know, propagates. So, um, that was kind of the starting point. And I will say too, like, add on to what Ryan said, we wrote this in May of 2020. Um, So of course, during, you know, the beginning of COVID, when we were kind of watching all our systems, our global capitalist system just completely collapse and like our healthcare system fail in some catastrophic ways. Um, And I think we've both always been fascinated. um, Kind of the opioid epidemic is kind of this like, weirdly perfect example of how our system fails so deeply yet works exactly how it's intended to. And so it's always just been this kind of like, almost just this perfect specimen to study to say, this is working exactly how it's supposed to and look at how fucked up this is. Um, And so by creating a Friends of Pharmaceuticals who has this opioid, it's actually an opioid addiction recovery drug um, within the film, we were kind of still playing on this idea that, well, what's the best way for a pharmaceutical company to make money is, to get you coming back for its product um, and, and how evil and cruel that is when it's something like opioids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And especially when it's under the assumption that it's to help people. But of course, when you put, you know, any company the system, within the system yeah. is always made for profit, then that is going to be the number one priority, not actually people's health and well-being. And it's just, 
especially when you look at the opioid epidemic, it's just so fucking clear and obvious. And so it's always just been something that we're like, this is just, we need to talk about this all the time, right? Like, this is insane. I love how you used the vape pen for that mm, <laughs> medicine because it's exactly what you're saying. It, it also just mirrored this idea that vape pens were created to stop people from smoking and then they become this their own addictive product and how many exactly. products like that we see on the market consistently the wellness yeah. industry is like a whole industry where there's just a ton of sickness and that's all due to capitalism so i just it was also just a great cinematic device i love the scene where um what is jason's boss's name Ga gary gary Yes. So in that scene where we're discovering along with Jason that they know people are getting addicted to the vape pen and actually that he's been using it for his own sciatica. I love the device with the vape pen there and just he's sucking on it because we all kind of know how addictive that is and how easy it is to harness that addiction. I just thought it was a great device as opposed to it just being another pill or another drug cinematically. I think you told the story so well there. Thank you so much. We also were really into this idea of the pen kind of connecting up with an app and this this promise that, you know, apps can solve all our problems in the privacy of our own homes um, felt really like in the moment uh, or like of the moment um, that like, oh, we should just all, you know, go back into our homes and, and do things privately um, and recover without community. Um, that mm. felt like a really... Mm something that is probably going to exist pretty soon. <laughs> and it just yeah. never, it just always goes around the core issue. It's just another band-aid. Yeah. It's like, oh, if we just get the tech a little bit better then like, mm -hmm. then it's going to solve it. But again, it's just band-aids on top of band-aids on top of band-aids. And then eventually, I mean, well, maybe I won't give it away. There's a great twist at the end that adds on to that. I really enjoyed that specific tech element because it was just like such a simple like plot device choice but it was so representative of all of these things that we're talking about, about how, you know, like what does the healthcare industry call it now? Like value-based care or whatever mm -hmm. shit would like da data driven mm -hmm. care, whatever bullshit that they're using to basically be, say like, we're in the business of, you know, uh, taking care of people, but really we're in the business of crunching fucking numbers. Yeah. So like, yeah. like the simplicity of it's, it's an opioid, uh, you know, it's, for, it's a drug to get people off of opioids, connect to, connected to your app, connected to your phone, connected to the vape. I was like, this encapsulates so many problems in Great. such a, in such a simple little like plot choice. So I really, really enjoyed that, that aspect of, yeah, where the, what the story was built around. Thank you. So glad we, you know, it's like almost like every industry got their little say in how that <laughs> fictional device was created. I'm I'm curious, one of the, like one of the really strong elements that I enjoyed was uh, the depiction of like this, this finance bro culture, or I guess it's like in this, in this film, it's like these pharma hustler bros. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, have either you worked in like a corporate workplace? Do you have any experience with like that type of... I don't know, like just like gross finance, bro. No, but I'm just upset. I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> I, I have, I have a little bit. Not in the, not in the tech side. I've got, I've done a lot of, you know, commercial stuff, kind of, um, you know, gigging for corporate gigs and things like that. And and actually, someone, uh, a, a close person to me, um, did work in medical equipment sales uh, for a little bit, and um, you know, ended up basically kind of having a crisis of conscience and ended up like becoming, you know, a yoga instructor and went wow. off the grid. Damn. So that also was kind of a little bit part of the inspiration for this too, was, um, you know, at, and that person was working, you know, not even to this level. It was on, you know, very, very kind of like simple, you know, uh, you know, equipment, but just the fact that, you know, they go to these retreats and go to these, you know, it's like they've been depicted in, in so many other, um, you know, like recent series like Dope Sick and things like that, where they have these, mm -hmm. you know, sort of like uh, sponsored speaker events, but they're just like excuses to get, you know, everyone drunk and raves. didn't have a good time. Yeah, this is like a, yeah, farmer rave, basically. <laughs> and, um, you know, everyone's uh, just like looking to hook up and then go to the next one rather than, you know, necessarily like really breaking down what should be done and what can be done and how can we really improve things. It's just kind of, you know, it's so transactional, um, just kind of like the whole, the, the rest of it. So um, that played into our thought for sure. 
what's super disturbing thinking about the intersection of technology here is like what your film shows is, you know, potentially someone can have a conscience and maybe break mm-hmm. the cycle and do something. But what these companies want to do is eventually just incorporate AI into all these jobs where you think like, mm. God, you know, when you're like debt collectors and all these these jobs that are like considerably you're like, how does somebody do that? And we we know under capitalism they do it because they freaking have to. No choice. Yeah. To survive. There's no choice. But if AI replaces that, there's no like there is no conscience. You are just mm. They're coming after you no matter what. There's no arg- There's no human, you know, when you're like having the conversation right. on the phone. And what does that mean in the medical industry when you're talking through your medical bills or when you're just trying to be seen and heard in, in an already so already corrupt industry? Um, it's almost like there's a there's we're in a moment of like a last hope until it mm. <laughs> completely falls apart. This is a really optimistic uh, episode. (laughs) It's true. And I mean, and even like, you know, we have some, you know, friends and stuff that are that are doctors and, you know, have been telling us that, you know, they have a very, very strict amount of time that they're allowed to spend with their patients before they have to go to the next one. And no matter how much it might benefit the patient to sit there and really listen to their problems and get a full, you know, examination of things, they got to move on. And if they don't make their numbers, then, you know they get kicked out too and so again with ai and things like that where it's just you know more mindless mindful service to these you know to the stockholders basically shareholders um it's it's a bleak bleak outlook for Mm -hmm. sure on the industry Mm -hmm. your film also it had such a i love the tone um it was definitely satirical satirical but thriller very funny, very much a dark comedy. I'm curious. I mean, it was clear to me what films it brought to mind, but what were films that you were thinking about watching as you prepared to make this one? Oh, um, great question. And I'm glad that the tonal aspects, uh, you enjoyed that. Um, yeah. yeah, we definitely did want to make sure it wasn't too sad or depressing. Like, we, you know, we want to make entertaining films, films that you want to watch and enjoy watching and have fun um, while at the same time sneaking in our rage uh, <laughs> here and there. Um, but film, films that inspired us uh, for this were, gosh. The Coen brothers yeah. definitely, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. Done so much great stuff uh, tonally where, you know, they'll take a very serious subject and, you know, inject a lot of entertainment in it. And, you know, like Abby's saying, you know, like we, we didn't want to make like an essay film, you know, again, series like Dope Sick and things like that. We know we didn't want to make something that was like, about the Sackler family or something like that. Not only that has that been done, but the scope of that is, you know, um, on, an, on another level. And we had our own kind of thing we wanted to do. But we also love watching movies like them. And we love Burn After Reading and, um, you know, Big Lebowski and things like that. Mm. Um, but then, you know, there's a lot of great kind of like 80s and 90s uh, thrillers that are kind of in the same vein. I mean, Enemy like of the State. Enemy of the State. Was a big one. The Firm and mm. The Net and Fletch <laughs> and um, <laughs> stuff like that. Jason's performance, definitely, you know, some Chevy Chase inspiration from Fletch for sure. Um, you know, someone that's kind of like in over their head to, I think what brought the comedy to my, you know, the, the, the darkness of the subject matter, I think starts to become kind of funny when you think about someone who's like inside and then is trying to shift gears and then but has no idea how to live no yeah has no idea is totally Mm -hmm. out of their depth and then starts making mistakes (laughs) and then once mistakes starts happening then they make more mistakes and bigger mistakes and that kind of comedy of errors um as just you know it's just funny um and i think it also helps to keep the tension taught you know when you've got a scene of serious things and you can kind of break it with something comedy and then disarm the audience a bit and then kind of shift again and then we're back into something a bit more serious i think you know you can kind of get things a little bit more palatable almost that Mm -hmm. way too um put a little spinach in the popcorn so to speak no i think that's i think that's such a smart way to present sort of like what what are in like very depressing ideas and like a, a story that could, like you're saying, like the dope six, the mm-hmm. any story about addiction, which are mm-hmm. very heavy subject matter, but like punctuating it with this like sort of like absurdist comedy. Yeah. It doesn't make it feel didactic or like you're lecturing people. It feels like uh, 
it, it has its own momentum that pushes pushes the film along, which I really enjoyed. So for a lot of our listeners probably don't have a, a, a large amount of insight into the nitty gritty of how a fucking movie gets made. So, and I know that it's different for every production, you know, depending on resources, time, whatever, but I'm curious for you too. So you've, you've finished the screenplay and you're like, we want to make this a movie. Can you just like walk us through what are, what do the next steps look like, especially for, you know, I'm assuming the two of you aren't, you know, multi multi millionaires. So it's not it's not a question of simply, you know, like, like, what's the budget for this movie? Fifteen million dollars. Daddy's got it. So. Yeah. Uh, so what does that look like for? Yeah. For more, for like an indie film like the two of you have produced. Well, it was kind of a special case because we did shoot it. We wrote it and produced it and shot it during like peak COVID uh, pre vaccine. So that was insane. But. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. We kind of. <laughs> We worked together. Uh, we moved out of New York um, into my parents' house and wrote the script for three months, kind of with this goal of like either we're shooting in no- we're shooting in October, or we're not filming this at all um, because of COVID, wanting to be out, needing to be outside um, before it got too cold. Um, so we wrote it for three months and um, gave ourselves six weeks to prep this um, with our producer Alicia. Damn. And um, yeah, it that was, is a. It, that's a very, very fast. That's a very fast amount of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was such an interesting kind of indie filmmaking exercise. And like, we knew it was October. We knew we were in Militown. We knew we had a certain amount of resources. Because of COVID, we had to quarantine a lot of, you know, our whole cast and crew. So that really cut down on our resources again. So we were really kind of writing backwards to, to, to all these um, inhibitors that we had. Um, so, you know, how many people could be in a scene at once? We only had nine people on our crew because we just couldn't quarantine any more than that. Um, so it was a very specific and special experience, I think, producing this film. And as far as the funding goes, I mean, we basically each put in what we would normally put in to make a short film, essentially. And then that little bit of money helped us attract a little bit more money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from uh, some small, you know, friends, family, small investors, little things. And we ba- basically barely got enough to get through just the production, the shoot. And then once we got through that, then we had to raise more money for all of the post-production. And then once we got through that, then we had to raise more money for the distribution. Mm-hmm. So that came in phases as well. Um, and But you just have faith it's all going to yeah, work. Yeah, but you, you do. You just have to, I mean, just keep thinking that it's all going to come together. I mean, and, and again, the COVID stuff, I mean, we had no safety net. Um, you know, if someone got sick during the production, it would have shut down and it would have become a short film. Um, and, you know, it was a major risk and film production is always, you know, very stressful and always tight of limitations. And, you know, this idea, this initial idea, you know, I started kind of outlining it back in like 2017. And I was thinking about it on a bit more of like a almost like an international scale, maybe more like Indiana Jones or like, you know, uh, David Fincher level kind of thing. Yeah, just um, jet jet setting, all jet over the setting. Globe. Yeah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Because again, and this is kind of, you know, this is a global issue. So it, it ended up kind of, you know, in dreaming about it, it felt natural for it to go that way. But then, of course, when we decided to make it, you know, out in the suburbs, you know, uh, we scaled it all down. But then I think after making it, we realized like, wow, well, isn't it great that this didn't cost a hundred million dollars to make? Like, wouldn't isn't wouldn't it be great if movies didn't cost so much money, like and didn't require so many resources and something else that was really, really important to us was also to facilitate this production by giving our cast and crew all equity in the film too, which is wow. nearly unheard of, wow. uh, yeah. but something that we really, you know, felt strongly about. And we felt that all of our, you know, all of our team um, deserved certainly. And, you know, not only that, but it, it helped bring everyone together and feel like we were all contributing to this. And because you they know, are, because they are, especially because we, you know, it was only nine of us, um, you know, everybody was bringing so much to the table, wearing multiple hats, um, you know, fully going summer camp mode, <laughs> you know, staying at, you know, Abby's parents' house and this one other house that we had rented out for the shoot. And so, 
you know, it was great. And it was a great bonding experience with everyone during this time when everyone didn't want to be in New York. They were sick of being, you know, holed up in New York. We could bring them out, you know, into a little bit of nature and give everyone, you know, something to kind of work towards. And it was really, really satisfying and fulfilling. And, and certainly by the time we wrapped, our, our wrap party was lit everyone, <laughs> everyone was so excited you know just it gave to be the farmer rave something yeah exactly we have put <laughs> them to shame with. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly 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 yeah i just want to highlight that equity piece amongst your cast and crew because that's really important and we get a lot of questions on this podcast about how do you like what are alternatives to filmmaking that aren't your corporate <laughs> structure mm-hmm. the way that people mm-hmm. know Hollywood actually I want to ask this question that was asked to us on our recent mailbag episode we had a listener who asked us specifically they're they're uh, they have an aspiration to create entertainment in the future and they wanted to know do you really think Hollywood can move away from business moguls they feel that David Zasloff is responsible for the decline of modern cinema. And is it possible for creatives to take control of the industry soon? So given that you sort of started this alternative model, and I think this would probably parlay into a discussion about how you're distributing this, I want to know how, yeah, how it sounds like your politics really affected how you were creating this. It doesn't seem like you stumbled upon this concept of equity, that you must have had some concept of it. And so, yeah, talk a little bit about that. Well, at the time, it was actually kind of funny. I had been um, working on this little newsletter with some people I had volunteered on the Bernie campaign with, and I was like researching what collectives are. I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, what's this? Never heard of that. And so me and Ryan would just go on walks being like, is that even you can't do that in movies like you can't have any kind of shared ownership of anything and we talked about it a a lot and kind of decided not to completely revolutionize the movie making a system with this film but we did want to figure out how could we give make sure that our cast and crew like you know had a piece of this and so that was really interesting, just, you know, learning about new systems that of economics and then trying to apply it um, to what is generally a very like leadership, you know, producer le- or director mm-hmm. and producer led pursuit. And I think because of it, in a lot of ways, it does need um, a vision to guide a shoot and to edit a film. You know, I don't think having 20 people directing and editing a film would be a good idea. Um, But that's not to say we can't like recognize the work and like the physical labor and like the danger people put themselves in to make films. And I would imagine, tell me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that as an actor myself, like if on top of getting paid to be, you know, work for hire, you're there to do your job. And certainly if you really love your character and the work, you're giving into it. But there's this unfair, unspoken expectation that you should sort of give like you were saying the summer camp vibes or the this with indie filmmaking there's so much that you give I would imagine if I'm getting equity in a piece then I'm I'm really there like I'm really present in a different way did you find that that structure changed life on set you know I will say they were a bunch of amazing friends that were on our film yeah so I don't know if like you know with you know back end points for indie film if that's like really gonna be something that people are like oh well, I'm gonna make a ton of money after this you know it's an indie film yeah let's be of realistic. course but I mean you're but I think it's them. appreciated yeah, yeah. I, I totally think so um people have been like oh I, that never happened to me before no one's ever given me this and so that felt mm. really good and and I felt like not only is it just like something to say yeah you deserve this but also it's like we're just like friends together making a piece of art like why you know let's be kind not that kindness should guide like you know how our sister you know sort of but um it it did just feel right because these were people that we love that were you know taking a huge risk to come out and do this with us so it was important but I think you're right like kindness is really crucial and I've been on so many sets where the concept of kindness is like we're gonna be kind in how we interact and maybe talk but like the actual the resources maybe the resources are unkind you know what right. I mean like there's right. like a double and you have to so right. often be like but everyone's mm-hmm. talking kind and yet there's right. not enough I'm not being offered food or yeah. I'm being expected to do overtime and it's chill because we're all friends right. so I think it's important that those that there's a structural kindness there too 
Yeah, I think about that a lot. I really kind of dislike this, like, oh, let's just be kind to each other. Let's be nice. I'm like, I will be nice when I don't have to pay like $2,000 a month for my health care. You know, yeah. <laughs> like I don't sure. like mm-hmm. eh, like I, I would like something else besides kindness. Of course, like I want everyone to be nice to each other. But, you know, I'm always like, are we just saying this? Come on, like, let's back it up, back it up with something. No, yeah. there, there, there are absolutely correct moments for righteous anger. Like when you, when you, like when you get on a film set and you see that craft services is basically non-existent, that's mm-hmm. a time to get angry. Food, Food is, is absolutely, everything. Absolutely Food everything. Is everything. It's, yeah. it's fucking everything. And we, yes, we. That was a really important thing to us too. Is having because again, it was a summer camp thing. So we, you know, after our days, and we always did twelve-hour days, which no is more, insane. No but more. that's film. Um, that's sure. which is kind of a stand, you know, it sounds like a lot, but that's sort of, I guess, the standard. And just to be clear, too, we did give equity as well as a day rate for everyone, <laughs> yes, <too>. yes. <laughs> not just equity. Sure, um, sure. Um, but the food on top of that, you know, we all had dinner together and, um, you know, after that. And, and it was just like making everyone feel like this was, again, a group effort, a team effort. We're in it together. We're looking after each other and like we're all striving for the common goal of like making the best thing we can and for all of us to, you know, feel good about it um, and be inspired by it and like take this stuff, you know, these, these processes and these kind of like, you know, this mentality into, you know, our future projects. So we hope that that, that carries on for sure. All right. So you, you write the film, you produce the film, you bring these people together, you raise money for post-production, which for any of our listeners, uh, that's like the the editing, the audio mixing, the color correction, all of the things that go into the final the final aspects that make the movie really you know pop. And then and then next comes distribution. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in your email that you self distributed this film. And again, for for the listener, you know there are a lot of different avenues for film production. You know, ranging anywhere from a big Hollywood studio to an indie production, and those are pretty uh, you know amorphic in that like a film can get produced, but the channels for distribution are fairly fixed in that um, there are only, you know, several large distribution companies that have access to if you're going to be doing a theatrical run, like putting movies in theaters, or if it's online, you know, it's, you know, it's really just what the Amazons, the Netflixes or whatever. So tell, yeah. So tell us about how self distribution works. Yeah, that was uh, Twas a, a journey. Twas a journey is a whole new kind of, <laughs> yeah, like landscape for us because, you know, we've made a lot of short films before and essentially, you know, short films, you can finish them and put them online and say, wow, that was great. And okay, on to the next one. But there's no real marketplace per se for short films. But with a feature, you can, you know, make money from it and you because you've likely spent so much money you definitely want to pay back you know the you know recoup uh the money uh that you've made or at least attempt to and on top of that you want to try and get as make it as accessible as possible to your audience so we premiered at awesome film festival which was great and um you know we ended up getting you know about a half a dozen offers from different distribution companies and we you were know. just shocked at how little films are valued. Yes. Like shocked. Shock, shocked. It's like, shocking. <laughs> insane. Oh, and that value sorry. has only declined, yes. um, wow. you know, over the years. And, you know, we were getting these offers and then we're talking, you know, reaching out to our fellow filmmakers and being like, you know, who we knew had also made deals or gotten offers from these companies. We're like, oh my God, can you believe this terrible deal? And they're like, yeah, that's the same deal that I took. And we're like, this, oh, so this was this isn't yeah. just our film. You don't think our film is just you know stupid bad or yeah. bad or whatever you know or unvaluable, but this is this is like the standard rates of today. So like mm-hmm. essentially, companies and these aren't giant companies, but they're ones that you know put out movies prominent enough. Um, certainly, they will give you maybe five thousand dollars and then take forty percent of everything for fifteen years most yeah. of the time. Um, Jesus. <laughs> And, that's, and then they also have to recoup all their marketing. $5,000? Um, if that. If that. So Honestly, most of the offers we got zero. were no, no money up front. But we'll still oh. take 40%. Mm. So we were just kind of like, are, is this a joke? Like, am I in a dystopia? What's, mm. you know, and you know it's hard. You know it's going to be, there's so many movies that are made. Um, but because there's so few places to exhibit your films now, 
um, because theatrical isn't as popular because there are these five platforms you can go on. It's gotten kind of smaller, smaller areas of like, where can an indie film be seen? So there's then like less kind of options for where to put them and less people who, who want them. And so we were just like, this seems insane. Why we've, we've written, produced, filmed, edited, completed a film. Why are we handing over to someone else to do the bare minimum to put it on iTunes? And I think there's kind of like a, a little mini revolution going on with a lot of filmmakers going, wait, yeah, what? I'm not going to do that either. So we did talk to a lot of people who are doing this self-distribution because then you make all the money yourself. You're not paying someone to like write one email for you or like post on social media for you when you could have done it yourself. And we were in the unique position because we did produce and semi-finance this ourselves. We had control to take these deals or not not take these deals. And even further back, you know, to give our crew equity or not, you know, if we would have sold this script to Netflix or something or to a distributor, you know, from the beginning, they would have made all those decisions for us and we wouldn't have had any say Mm. in how the money split up or any of that kind of thing. So again, we found ourselves in this place where we're like, we don't have to take these deals. Everyone is going to pressure us and tell us. And some people even told us, oh, you don't need a lawyer to look at this contract. Just sign it. Don't, no big deal. Yeah, they were scammy. And meanwhile, they were going to end up charging us interest on the advance that they were going to give us. Things like that. It's 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 absolutely predatory. Like ask any filmmaker or producer, it's a notoriously predatory part of filmmaking is distribution. Dark. I'm sorry. And, and it's like, you know, it, it, we're lucky that this is a time where some of these tools like mm-hmm. doing your own ad buys yep. on Instagram or whatever, or on YouTube, or um, actually putting your film on, you know, let's say Vimeo or on uh, the iTunes store, the Amazon you store. You can like, do things. You can do that yourself. You know, you can pay and, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, Usually we're, we can now use the same tools that these distributors are using yeah. anyway, but we're just not handing them over the keys to let them drive and again, take 30% off the top. Yeah. Mm. Well, they don't totally own the means of production in that sense anymore. And I think you're right. Yeah. It's going to keep opening up, especially mm-hmm. like, even you said, I'm like, yeah, you can just get AI to do all that busy work <laughs> that they're probably just using AI to do anyways. Like it is yep. cool. I You said revolutionary and it does feel like that and it does feel like from the conversations we've had with listeners and different people in the industry like they're everyone's like there's a different there's There's a different way different way right exactly this seems crazy i'm thinking the same thing right now yeah i mean i I don't know nearly enough about the distribution industry itself but it feels like there's space for some sort of like collective distribution model that doesn't exist yet that you know like especially for indie filmmakers yeah. Um, you two should do that. Yeah. 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 So, some people are definitely, um, you know, exploring things like that mm-hmm. right now. And there's been a couple of amazing articles, um, you know, that the have been ideas published. are floating around for sure. Yeah. And this last year, the people are, you know, exposing some of the numbers also about films that have self-distributed compared to ones that have been taken over by distributors. And, you know, the, the profit margins are, are crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's something like 84 percent of distributed films don't break even. Damn. Like, what a crazy number is that? But then it's something like 50% of self-distributed films do do break even. So there's... Oh, yeah, There's some hope. Wow. So so it's it's extremely tough competition now, you know, more than ever, too, because there's also more films being made Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. than ever. So to find, you know whatever a place in the spotlight for yourself to to get your thing out there is more difficult and so you know that's that's also the ammo that these distribution companies will try and like you know hit you with like oh we've got we've got the access to whatever you know we'll get Mm -hmm. you that new york times review or whatever Uh, i don't know it's all captured we've just i think we've become fairly passionate about this topic in the last year because if if you can't get your movie out there, if people are taking your profit of your movie, if they're burying your film, you can't then go make another film. You can't have a lifetime of creating art. You you know, filmmakers don't have a, a path forward where they can really empower themselves. And so it's just been like a fascinating exploration of like kind of how films are taken out of the hands of the people that create them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that other people make money off of them instead of the people who just want to make the next film and the next film and are just trying to create something for everyone to enjoy. Um, so it's just been a like an 
eye-opening, fascinating time. And it it feels like I, I feel like almost now I'm like more obsessed with the business side of filmmaking, but I think it's been really important to learn about it and and to figure out, yeah, if like I do want to if we do want to make films for our lives, if this is like the career path you want, like you I, I'm happy that I've learned about it because um I definitely feel like I can make better decisions um, you know, going forward. <laughs> I think too, like like you're saying, you know, if you start really convincing yourself that, you know, you've got to pass your idea through a gatekeeper to get it made and bring it to the next stage, you're always going to be censoring your ideas into what you think is going to get sold. Mm-hmm. And then Which I think we are seeing a lot. And that's, you know, a lot what's happening with, you know, the content, the algorithm. So I think there's like some liberation in thinking like, well, if I have this idea that people are not, not going to find popular. Or, I know I can sell find commercial. I, I, I can yeah, get it out. I can find some yeah. way through, you know, and get it made. And like, you know, unfortunately, you know, films are so reliant on money on money and resources more so than you know like any other art form maybe other than video games or something you know so it's it's tough to begin with but then if you add these again these layers of gatekeepers and and things like that the you know it starts to get again very bleak in what you think can get made and then what type of filmmaker you're then you know kind of like forced to be or something like that and we we strongly reject that. <laughs> we want to, you know, we like, you know, uh, unleash the art, so to speak. Yeah. For whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that goes straight to your anti-capitalist values right there. And I'm super inspired and impressed by that and excited by where this takes you and where this takes makes sort of like a movement in in filmmaking. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you. I also, I also love that sentiment that you just articulated, Ryan, because like, I mean, Rivka and I, we went to theater school. We both worked at Rivka, Rivka still does, but in the entertainment industry, um, actor writers. And, you know, it, it's a very discouraging, creativity stifling industry yeah. at times. Yeah. And my last question was going to be like, how do you basically, how do you keep optimistic in the face of, you know, the, the business of Hollywood? But it's, it sounds like what you're saying is like, we're just going to do what the fuck we want and then we'll figure out how to how to get people to see it at the end and like for for me that's kind of where i finally arrived with my, the mm. way that i create stuff is like i'm no longer adhering to the business and i will just do stuff for me so mm-hmm. um it sounds like that's it sounds like that's where you two are at so that's kudos thanks i think it's still trying to figure out how do you make a sustainable life of that you know sure um but I think people are starting to talk about it and the conversations are happening on how, mm-hmm. how can this change? So I think it's, mm-hmm. I think, I think there's some good things ahead. Yeah, I'm, definitely. I'm curious, did you two go to film school? If you did, would you recommend it mm. given, I don't know, Frank and I have this conversa- conversation a lot, just in the sense, I feel like we're all talking about this big um, change in how we do things and you talking about how much you've learned and been radicalized now do you think you need to pay for film school anymore i yeah i did i did film studies at wesleyan um and i just like learning so (laughs) like i had a great time i super enjoyed learning is great learning is so fun um that doesn't mean it wasn't like a huge privilege to be able to go there i mean i really liked it it is a trade. Film is a trade in some sense. It's a business in some sense, but it is kind of a scholarly art pursuit as well in some sense. Um, and so I feel like I did get a lot of it, but I'm I, I but that was it. I wasn't going to do grad school or anything. I knew I just mm-hmm. had to kind of start making things to learn the rest of it. For me, I also went to film school. I went to Savannah College of Art and Design and I did learn a lot. Um, I got a lot of exposure to equipment that I wouldn't have been able to otherwise. Certainly mm. at that time, equipment was more expensive and mm. kind of unattainable than it is now. But even still, um, I got a lot of experience. But I would say really the thing that was the most valuable part of it was the community that I was a part of and am still a part of. Um, and, you know, I, we still work with many of the people that, you know, I met back then and, you know, the connections that I have through those people. I mean, film is not 
yeah, the 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 myth the 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 myth of the auteur. I I really dispel that because film is really about a team. You can't just make it with one person. It is about a collection of ideas and skill sets and talents from people. And you know, we wouldn't have been able to make this movie without you know, even though it was nine people, it couldn't have been any less than nine people. I you know, we needed all you know everyone and everyone brought so much. And um, you know, so that that aspect of it. I think it is really, really important, the community aspect of film, for sure. You know, but it, but film school is really expensive, too. And, you know, it took, it took me a really, really long time to pay off my student loans. Um, so there, there's that side of it, too. So, it different, you know, everyone is in their own circumstance. But certainly now, um, with equipment being so much mm. cheaper, at, you know, cheaper than it's ever been, mm-hmm. um, you know, making something, you know, in your backyard of a totally professional quality is possible now in a way that it wasn't even 15 years ago. So Mm, that's mm -hmm. very cool. Yeah, I I think Frank and I would agree our community was like the most was so valuable. I'm always like my most expensive Mm -hmm. friends. And I wouldn't trade you for the world. (laughs) (laughs) And I hold you close because of it. (laughs) All right. Well, Abby and Ryan, this is the point of the episode where we give out awards for your film. Uh, Mm -hmm. We have three of them. Curious to hear your takes on them. Okay. Uh, Yeah. yeah. I've been thinking about them, too. Mm -hmm. Our first award is Best Politics. Goes to the character with the best politics in the film. Gotta say, say Charlie. Charlie. For sure. Yeah. Uh, Carrie, oh. Young. Carrie Young's character. Yes. She's she's kind of the, the, the shining beacon, I think, amongst a lot of the darkness and mucky muck that, um, you know, a lot of the rest of the, the, the characters and the environment sort of are bringing. Um, and she pushes it maybe too far sometimes, but yeah. I always think that's good. It's good to push things too yeah, far she, sometimes. Yeah, she's not, she, her, you know, her... Her methods perhaps are a little messy um, and <laughs> and all that, but I think her heart and her mind are, are in the right place. Yeah, yeah there's a clarity of intention her. with Charlie. I loved her, Carrie Young's performance, and I just for a moment I forgot that 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 Charlie was Kara's character's name, and oh. so I was like, "Oh, you're giving it to Charlie?" <laughs> I was like, "Who's that?" Because it's clearly <laughs> yes, it's clearly Charlie. Was like, yeah, you don't yeah, know your yeah. own movie. There was one line I wanted to shout out because I just loved mm. it so much. I think mm. Charlie says this to Jason: "This is what is wrong with all you men. You think your buddies are incapable of being evil when you are literally drowning in the evidence just because you guys high five one time. <laughs> it just you encapsulated <laughs> so much." Such a mean line. <laughs> it's not even mean. It's just honest. It's honest. And there's a lot of politics in that line. I just yeah. think it's a really... The alliances that men build. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes, Charlie. Who are you going to... You were going to offer another name, right, Frank? No, I was just going to say you're like runner-up runner Priya. Mm-hmm. For no. sure, runner-up. Yes. yes. Yeah. Shout out to Priya. She, she like gets past the, the totally righteous personal grievances that she has with Jason yeah. to like do the right thing and help him out without, you know... Not too many spoilers. Yeah. yeah. I would say that uh, a line that we really like from Priya um, is that she's, you know, I don't want this to end up like another bad Apple report, um, you know, and that <laughs> this is just about one person within the company. It's not just Gary. It's not just Gary, you know, that's kind of like causing this problem. This does, you know, this is systemic, um, yeah. you know, with within the industry, within this business. And I think that's something we really wanted to hit on. So I'm glad she, she gets to deliver yeah. that line. All right, our next award is, you guessed it, Worst Politics. Goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. Oof. I mean, you know, I mean it's, it's tough. tie, maybe, between yeah. Blake and Gary. I know, and Gary yeah. Gary, almost maybe takes it for me because I think he's, he's someone kind of, you know, Blake is a little bit more kind of clear-cut-ish evil, you mm. know, he, he's... He's very, and we can respect that. No, <laughs> I get, you know, like respect. He's committed to the bit, but um, <laughs> Gary is kind of in this place between Blake and Jason, where he he knows that something is wrong, and he's very willfully ignoring it and putting mm. it down. And I think yes. that's somehow that almost seems a little bit worse to me than Blake, who's kind of I don't know, just at least committed to some you know uh, insane like nihilistic ideal of, you know. No, but Blake probably gets it. I mean, Blake Blake gets it, let's let's say, but Gary definitely close runner up. 
That was my same take as well, where I'm like, Blake, the CEO, is he's clearly done more systemic systemic damage than Gary has throughout his life and has, I'm sure, a very, very, very toxic uh, politics. Um, (laughs) Although there's like a delusion to him, whereas like like you're saying, right, like Gary, Gary's like acknowledging he's like, I'm a piece of shit. I'm a piece of shit who does terrible things. And there's like, when and I you can know, handle it. Yeah. yeah. And I can handle it. It's like when you're acknowledging that you're fucking evil and, and then like owning up to it, that's like a real gross politics. It's like a manly so. thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's also, but he's also like addicted and on those drugs the whole time. Right. Like that's he's true. just, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe that makes a difference in our tie. I don't know. They can both have it. They can both have you'll it. You'll have to yeah. watch. Uh, they can both have it, but you'll, Listeners have to watch the movie and decide for yourself. All right. Our last award goes to best supporting slash spinoff. This goes to the character that this movie, I'm not going to say should actually be about because this is your movie. So I'm not going to say that direct, but like (laughs) that you might, if you were inspired to write another film about who would you center? Obviously, Charlie Charlie. drinking a Bellican Mm -hmm. on the beach, plotting her next move. Yes. Oh, so you would go straight sequel, like straight how? Sequel. Like, oh, okay. There's a lot of places to go. Like, what I want to see the downfall of Forenza. You know, exactly. there's so many. Exactly. And Charlie at the at the helm of that. Yeah, we have gotten a lot of uh, Q and A requests for franchise. A, a sequel a franchise or something with with Charlie continuing that story, and so that that's always good to hear because we. Again, we do think she's a, a great character and um, we'd love to spend more time with her for sure. I would watch more of like Jason's time at Forenza before he gets fired. Like, because I really, again, I really I thought like you, you both nailed the, just like the tech bro, finance bro, corporate bro culture. And I would love to see, I think you could do a great movie just like deconstructing that as mm-hmm. a concept in and of itself. Like, yeah. where does it come from? Why, like, yeah. Like who instills these men with these values? Like yeah. how do we? I would I would watch more of that. Cool. I agree. I love that world. That whole world you created. I could go into more. I'm gonna say there's that small. There's like the smallest scene with the sex worker on camera, mm. and and mm. I just love the dialogue there, where she's having to put up with this fucking guy who's like talk to me like I'm poor. Oh yeah, you know like all this, and I just want to know. <laughs> How many fucking like I just want a series of the like the shit she's seen, you know, and like that kind of like the the clients she deals with. I know that there's films like that, but I would love to see you two take a shot at at that world. Ooh, ooh, I love that. Thank you. Love that. Stealing I mean, that for the next one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even in that scene, she's on her phone while she's giving him, uh, you know. <laughs> His his <laughs> medicine, so to speak. So we could just, count, you know, I'm sure she's booking her next client, um, yeah. you know, midway through. So we could just jump right in, you know. Yeah, in the next oh, movie, you two take down OnlyFans. Yeah. <laughs> just saying that that CEO's fucking skimming a lot of money from those sex workers. It's, I'm it's, sure it's 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 really yeah. Just for another podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, before we wrap up, uh, the last thing we'd like to do with our guests is discuss how we as artists and people strive to practice our values in our own lives with all of its complexities and contradictions. So is there one thing that you two do in your daily life, um, whether it's like a practice you engage in, an organization you work with, whatever, uh, where you get a chance to practice your anti-capitalist values? I was thinking about this. I would say it's probably mostly in my work. My next film is about private equity. <laughs> Ooh, oh. that's important. That's very good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a bit of like corporate culture um, around that and why people stick with it. And so I love reading about that. Um, and I'm excited to create a very darkly funny, fucked up uh, tale of, of private equity, um, hopefully in my next movie. And for me, um, I guess, yes, also, also in my work, I definitely try to, you know, focus it that way. And I have a, yeah, a couple new things I'm writing too, but I think that for me, I, I really want to continue on with this, I guess, methodology of trying to make things sort of a little bit outside the system and off the grid and giving the people that are working with me equity and trying to find 
you know, again, this this whole path of self-distribution is not one that we ever saw ourselves going on. And like, you know, I, I don't even I, I don't think I ever wanted to know as much as I do know now. <laughs> I This is not my main passion. It's like making the movies. But now that we've been exposed to it, it really seems I see how important it is to, I think, the longevity of like independent artists making films and making them, you know, again, outside like big money and big corporate interest and things like that. So I, I definitely want to like continue down that path and, and find myself working on that stuff every day. So that's, that's how I do it, I guess. That's amazing. That's beautiful. Abby Ryan, where can, where can folks find the two of you and where can they watch this GD film? (laughs) Well, what a great question. You can find his GD film uh, called blow my life. It's out now on demand on Apple, Amazon Prime and Vimeo On Demand. Vimeo On Demand is the best one to watch it on because we get the biggest splits. Vimeo is very generous. They give the they give the best uh, equity to filmmakers. And you can find the movie online at blowupmylife.com. You know, we're on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, me and Ryan are linked on all those things as well. So hit us up. You know, it's it's, it's there on the Internet for sure. Amazing. And we'll be sure to link to all of that in the sh- in the episode description. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. Yeah. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you for making this movie and thank you for reaching out. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Our pleasure. You An honor best. to talk with you. Yeah, this is so fun. You. Let's all go to the library.